If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 25 for our sermon passage today. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can find it printed uh, in the bulletin for you. Uh, This is our last sermon in Isaiah, at least for now. Uh, We've been in Isaiah since the beginning of the fall. And here at the Christmas Advent season, we've picked four passages that foretell the birth of a great king. Uh, Today's, you might look at it and say, well, wait a minute, the word king doesn't appear today. Well, look at the verse, if you have your Bible, right before chapter 25 begins, and you'll see the connection. Uh, In chapter 24, verse 23, it says, The Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders with great glory. And so everything that Isaiah is going to say in, a, in, the, in chapter 25 is about the day when God reigns. The day when God reigns over Mount Zion. Notice verse 6. Notice what it says God will do when he reigns. He will throw a party. He will throw a party. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, please hear God's word starting in verse 1. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name for imperfect faithfulness. You have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm. And a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall, and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. He will swallow up death forever. Amen. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. I don't know if you realize this, but one of the top things that Jesus reaches for, if he's reaching for an analogy to describe the kingdom of heaven, are parties. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, By my count, about eight different stories that Jesus tells, eight different parables, he works in the theme of a banquet or a feast or a party. The kingdom of heaven, he says, is like a king who throws a wedding feast for his son, for example. And all the ends of the earth are invited into this feast. You see, what is Jesus trying to get at there? What is he trying to get at? Oftentimes, I don't know if you've noticed, maybe this Christmas season you notice it more than ever. Sometimes the way that we party drains strength and energy, right? Right? Uh, maybe you had a wilder time of your life back when you, maybe you used to party hard, as they say. It, wasn't it true, even though you, you said, I'm going out to party to have a good time, you, you left more exhausted? 
your life more empty than it was before? I think that's often the case, right? I mean, it's a, it's a funny thing. The joy that the world offers is a strength zapper. While the joy that God offers, the Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so when Jesus says, look, the kingdom of heaven is like a party, he's talking about a party that God throws to bring greater joy forever, actually everlasting joy to his people. A joy that will never be taken away. A joy that you'll never run out of, you'll never, uh, you'll never miss it because you're so exhausted from partying. The party itself will just increase the joy. One, one uh, moment on top of another moment on top of another moment. Last week we saw that when the Holy Spirit comes, he builds fear in your heart. The fear of the Lord, a special kind of fear. But this morning you've got to understand, the fear of the Lord is not inconsistent with the joy of the Lord. In fact, the two go hand in hand. You can't really have one without the other. You fear the Lord, therefore you rejoice in Him. And the joy that you have in the Lord now is just the tiniest little foretaste. It's just an hors d'oeuvre to the feast that God is preparing for His people. Now, if we're going to understand this, we've got to, we got to ask a few questions about this feast that God's, going to, that God's going to throw, this party that He's going to throw. If you look at your bulletin, I want to show you three things today about the feast of God. Three things. First of all, it's a fulfillment of His plan. Second of all, it's the rescue of His people. And lastly, it's the song of His praise. Okay, It's the fulfillment of His plan, the rescue of His people, and the song of His praise. First of all, the fulfillment of his plan. Look at verse 1 again in chapter 25. Remember what it said at the end of 24, The Lord will reign over Zion, and here's what will happen. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. Now, isn't it interesting? Notice how he describes God's works as wonderful We've already talked about this word before in the Isaiah series. In the Bible, the word wonder means something deeper than it means in English. It means basically miracle, like signs and wonders. You've probably heard about that during the days of, you know, in the story of Moses when he, he does the plagues. God calls those, I will show Egypt my wonders, my wonderful things. And here it says, God, you've done this wonderful miracle, this miracle of that you're going to do whenever you reign over all the earth. But you do this miracle, he says, in perfect faithfulness. It's wonderful because it's a miracle, but it's also wonderful because it shows and demonstrates your faithfulness, God. Now think about that for a minute. Uh, if you wanted to compliment somebody on a job well done, you could do it in numerous ways, right? Uh, you could say, hey, great job. You really put in a lot of effort, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, I can tell. In that case, you're complimenting the person's what? Hard work, their work ethic. But you're, really, you're not actually saying that they did a good job. You're just saying, hey, I, I like the effort. Sometimes we do that, don't we? Instead of saying, I like it, we just say, hey, good try, you know, basically. You can also say, hey, you're really, great job. You're really clearly talented. And in that case, you're, you're complimenting someone's sort of internal skills and abilities. But then there's another way you could do it. You could say, hey, great job. You did really faithful work. That's a whole different thing altogether, right? When you call somebody's work faithful, you're calling it consistent 
to a standard that already existed. You following me? Uh, A faithful worker is not just someone who has skill and talent, not just someone who tries hard. It's someone who listens to instructions. Isn't that right? Listens to instructions and seeks, because of respect, to carry out the instructions. Now, that's, that's one thing. I mean, we understand that that's part of life. That's part of going to work every day. It's part of being a kid at home, learning how to listen to instructions. But in what sense can we say God does work in perfect faithfulness? I mean, what in the world would the standard be by which God's work could be evaluated and called faithful? And yet the Bible all over says, God, the thing about your work, the thing that we want to compliment the most is it's so faithful. A faithful according to what? Well, Isaiah tells us, you have done things planned long ago. Here's a mystery this morning. You like mysteries? Things that are too deep to fathom, but yet they're fun to... Think about because they put us uh, you know, up against the majesty of God, which is infinite. Here's a mystery for you. God's work is judged faithful according to his own eternal plan. What makes what God does faithful is that God consistently carries out to a T exactly on time the things that he has always decided in his own holy heart to do. In fact, the Bible, I mean, this is, this is a theme that the Bible brings up again and again. Like, for example, in the book of Numbers, it has this almost throwaway line where it says, God, you are not a man that you should change your mind. And that's what it's talking about, the faithfulness of God. God made a plan long ago, and he has executed it. He's not changed his mind. He's not said, oh, well, plan A didn't work. So let me try plan B now. And then plan B didn't work because these people are knuckleheads. Let me try plan C. It's not how God does. God had a plan, singular. And every step along the way in history, God has carried out that plan. God is not a man that he should change. Isaiah brings this up. God, once you have planned something, Isaiah says, you never turn back. You're never thwarted, is the word he uses in another passage. I believe that's in chapter 46 of Isaiah. No one can thwart you, God, when you carry out your plans. God's faithfulness, you see is a faithfulness judged by his own holy will. He's the only one, actually, that can be judged faithful according to that standard. Everybody else, like us as human beings, we're judged by our fitness to other people's will or God's will, ultimately. God is the only one. This is the beautiful thing about God who's judged by his own holy will. It's brilliant. Why am I bringing this up? Because the feast of God that he is preparing for his people, the feast that he brought about when his son was born into this world on Christmas, the most glorious thing about it is it happened according to plan. Paul in in, uh, Galatians chapter 4 says this, When the set time had fully come, God sent forth his son. The ESV and the King James Version says, when the fullness of time had come. I love that. I love that. When the fullness, when the time was full. In other words, God is never late. God is never early. God arrives precisely when he means to. Right on time. Jesus Christ was born into the world at the very moment God purposed it. The feast that God will bring one day to the whole world that he talks about in verse 6 will happen in his timing according to his eternal plan. Listen, 
We do not live in an aimless world. And that ought to encourage our hearts. Your life is not aimless. And neither is your life simply in your hands for you to be the captain of it only. It's not. It's in the hands of God. That should encourage your heart too. I mean, how many of us would sign up for a cruise to nowhere? Right? Would you do that? Hey, come to a cruise. Where are we going? We don't know. We'll figure it out. And you get onto the boat if you do decide, and you realize there's no captain either. Everybody just sort of takes turns captaining for a day. Anybody want to go on that? No. I mean, maybe some of us, you know, some of us are that daring, right? Especially if you're a kid, you might want to. But yeah, if we're really thinking about it, we wouldn't want to. But yet, how often do we think life is that way? No captain, just everybody taking turns, controlling the world, and who, where are we headed? Who knows? Who knows? The height, or, or we, we could say the depth of despair comes when you stop believing that God has an eternal plan from of old that he's carrying out in the world. And the Christmas story is a reminder. In fact, I'll say it's a proof. The fact that Jesus Christ was born, God became flesh, is a proof that God's been working his plan out and he's still working it out and he's not going to stop till it's finished. And what that will one day end up with is this mountain full of food, a banquet, verse 6, where God spreads a feast with wine and meat, the finest of wines and the finest of meats, to invite his people to enjoy and feast with him forever. That's going to happen one day. And every step along the way in your life is a, is a sort of a part of that. Uh, you know, don't think of the plan of God as a straitjacket. Oh, if God's planned everything, then what does it matter whether, what I do? Don't go that route. Instead, I mean, that, that route actually is such a... It fails to wonder at the wonder. It fails to be excited about the mystery. And it tries to understand it and put it in a human-sized box. Don't think about it that way. Just be amazed that God is in control. And let that cause your heart to rest. Sometimes we're not at rest because we're trying to be the one whose plans of old need to come to pass. Sometimes we're not at rest because we feel like the world is that aimless cruise ship, just kind of headed out to nowhere, no captain, no nothing, just who knows where we're going to end up. Y'all, if the world is going to end with a feast, there must be a God. If the world is going to end with a feast, there must be a God. And if the world is going to end with a feast, there must be a God who knows what he's doing and has a plan and knows how to work it out. That's the first thing. The feast is the fulfillment of God's plan. God, you've done wonderful things, things you planned long ago, and you did them in perfect faithfulness to that plan. Now, secondly, the feast is the rescue of God's people. The rescue of God's people. Uh, there in verse 2 uh, all the way down to uh, verse 8, he describes both what God does to prepare the way for the feast to happen and what's going to happen on the day of the feast. Uh, let's skip ahead to uh, verse 6 and look first at the feast itself. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food. We've already seen that. A banquet of aged wine, the finest of meats and the finest of wine. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that covers the peoples. 
It's like there's this heavy blanket, this sheet that has, been, that has fallen over your life and mine and over the world. And when the feast comes, God is going to lift the sheet that weighed us down. And it's a weighted blanket, by the way, this sheet. You know those weighted blankets that weigh a lot to try to keep you asleep? It's like that. It's, it's, it's so heavy, though, we can't lift it. And that sheet is called death. I mean, the thing that makes life feel aimless, pointless, miserable is the fact that it ends. And the end of it is completely out of our control. And the way in which it ends seems to infect every day. You know, there's little sort of like tastes of death, isn't there, in everyday life, whether it's a sickness or an injury or a pandemic or whatever it is. There are these little bitter tastes of death that come into our lives all the time. It's like a sheet hanging over us. There's no way God's people can have joy unless God lifts that sheet. But here it says the feast where, the, where God is going to fill the mountain with a, with a table and he's going to seat his people at the table is going to be the result of lifting up the heavy burden that laid over people so that all tears, verse 8, are wiped away from all faces. It's a beautiful way to say it. All tears wiped from all faces. I mean, he, he could have just said all tears are wiped, but he says from all faces. It's very personal. It's like God is going to one day come up to each one of us individually. Look us in the eye and personally wipe your personal tears away. That's magnificent. That's the reason why Jesus compares the kingdom to a, to a banquet, to a party. And that party is not a party that zaps your strength. It's a party that gives you strength because God is taking away the things that worked on and broke down our strength all through life. Death itself will be overwhelmed. The New Testament says Jesus now reigns because of his resurrection. But he will reign until all enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And the last enemy to be made a footstool is death. And when death is made a footstool, the party's here. That's the way the New Testament puts it. And I think it's really just uh, Paul, for example, uh, writing about Isaiah 25. It's all he's doing. He's just saying, look at Isaiah 25. This is what Jesus is doing in our world. He's working towards the lifting of the sheet of death. But how? Think about it. How does he do it? How does he prepare for it now? Verses 2 through 5. He brings down those who exalt themselves, and he lifts up those who humble themselves. That's how he does it. That's how he prepares for the feast. Did you notice all down the line there, he, uh, Isaiah is contrasting what he calls foreigners and their city and the poor and their city. Now, um, the bad guys are foreigners and the poor are the good guys. Now, before you say, well, wait a minute, is this a racist poem in the Bible? Is this against foreigners? No. You've know, you got to pay attention to how the Bible uses the term foreigner. It's not the way you know, we would use it. Uh, in Israel, because Israel as a nation was also the church, a foreigner was someone who was an unbeliever. Someone who was not humble before God, did not listen to God. It's not, it's not an issue of ethnicity or race or anything like that here. It's an issue of faith or not. Humility or pride. And it says the, the city that the foreigners build, in this sense, is a city that tries to be strong in itself. It tries to boast in its own strength. But God is going to tear that city down until it's a heap of rubble. 
But the poor, they run to God himself as their stronghold. In other words, the poor, that that is not just the materially poor, but the poor in spirit, those who are humble before God, they run to God as their city. So the, the proud foreigner has as their own, you know, as a city, their own works, their own boasted pomp and all their great riches and wealth. Uh, the believer has as his or her city God himself. And what God is doing throughout this time of Jesus' reign is he's lifting up the one and bringing down the other. Here's another way to say it. There's two ways to live. Two ways to live. You can live in a my will be done way, or you can live in a thy will be done way. A my will be done way or a thy will be done way. If you live in a my will be done way, God, make no mistake about it, he is working to bring you down. And he will, in fact, bring you down, either now or later. It's like gravity. It's just as sure as gravity. But if you learn by grace to live a life of thy will be done, guess what? God will lift you up. Just like gas rises. It works just as surely. God will lift up the humble and bring down the proud. That's why the gospel can only be really understood by a humble heart. One of my really good friends and mentors always told a story about one of his daughters when she was little, like a toddler or something. Uh, they were out uh, working in the yard, and the sprinklers were going, and the toddler kept saying, rainbow, rainbow. But, you know, my friend kept looking up at the sky, no rainbow. I mean, there was no rainbow in the sky to be seen. There was no clouds. There had been no rain. There's no rainbow. But she kept saying, rainbow, rainbow, so pretty, rainbow. And eventually, you know, he, he kind of lost hope trying to find it in the sky. And he went down to her level, looked up through the sprinklers, and through the sprinklers from that level, there was a rainbow. And he always tells the story. He, he's, a, he's another pastor. He always tells the story to say that's the way the gospel is. The gospel is like that rainbow. If you're way up here, nose stuck up, you think so highly of yourself, all these Christians are talking about rainbow, rainbow, feast, feast, joy, joy, wonderful things. And you're thinking, what? I don't see nothing. Y'all are crazy. But when someone is willing to bow before the king, the gospel shines in multicolored brilliance, doesn't it? Isn't that amazing? That's what this passage is saying. The day when God reigns, when he prepares his feast, you've got to make sure you're humble according to this definition. And I want to tell you the good news is this morning is a morning you can humble yourself. It's a morning that you could humble yourself. It's as simple as saying, God, I've lived, my will be done, but I want to live, thy will be done, help me to do it. God, I come to you with nothing in my hands of my own. I cannot boast anymore in my own city that I'm building. I need to take refuge in your city that you are building. I need you, God, to be my strength and to be my shield. My question this morning is, are you proud or are you humble? Well, all of us are a mix, aren't we? Wouldn't you say? All of us are a mix. But the journey of the Christian life, the, 
The business of the Christian life every day is to put to death the pride and to bring to life and put on the humility. Thy will be done, God. Not my will. I don't want to be a part of that city that gets torn down brick by brick and is just a heap of rubble in the end. By the way, even though it seems so strong now, it'll be a heap of rubble then. To follow God now seems like a heap of rubble to a lot of people. But it will be a glorious city then. question is, are you going to trust what God says or what you think? What God says or what other people say? It's very important. Lastly this morning, the feast is not only about the fulfillment of God's plan and the rescue of his people, but it's about the song of his praise. Look at verse 9. In that day when the feast comes, they will say. Now who is they? The ESV just says, it will be said in that day. It shall be said. But who is the they that it's referring to? Well, it's not God. And it's also not the people who have been made a heap of rubble. It's the humble. The people who are a part of God's city, who by faith have become a part of God's family, who will be seated at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the other believers to feast with God. Those people will sing a song on that day. Now, I want you to listen to what the song says. Surely this is our God. This is our God. Notice how it doesn't say that is our God. This is our God. What's the difference? God is there now, not far away. He's not over there. He's not off somewhere. He's not unseen anymore and inaccessible to us like he is now. But on that day, he becomes there. This, behold, look, open your eyes and see it. This is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. Notice past tense. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. Then past tense. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice now and be glad in it. Present tense. Let me tell you something. The song at the feast is a song that only certain people can sing. The business of your life is learning how to rehearse it so that you can sing it. Tonight our kids and our band will do a rehearsal. You could say a dress rehearsal. You know, even though we're not going to have costumes, you could say that. A dress rehearsal for Thursday night's service. What are they going to do at that dress rehearsal? They're going to go over and over again the particular songs that have been selected for them to sing on that night. And they're going to to get it, they're going to sing them until they get it. They're going to recite the Bible verses they've been reciting in their class until they can all say it together in unison so that they can help us worship the Lord. That's what rehearsal is about. It's doing something now over and over again. Practice, practice, practice. They say that it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert in something, to become super skilled at something. That's a lot of hours. That's what rehearsal is about. So what is it that we can do now to rehearse, to learn to sing the song that will be sung only by the redeemed in heaven? Well, the song itself tells you. Did you notice it? Look at it again. 
what does the song itself tell you we have to do now to rehearse to sing this song one day? And in fact, if we don't rehearse it and do it, we will not be able to sing the song. Revelation 14, by the way, says that in heaven, the redeemed with the Lamb will sing a song that no one else knows but them. What do we need to do to make that song ours? Did y'all see it? What is it? We trusted in him. Twice it says it. Uh, or we waited on him is another way to put it. We waited on God. We trusted in him. Jesus told a story, one of his many stories. I said there were about eight where Jesus says, hey, the kingdom of heaven is like a party. One of them was that story that I, that I mentioned earlier. A king threw a wedding party for his son and he went out and invited people. Remember, nobody who was invited came at first. They all had excuses. Oh, I've got a new, a new set of oxen that I need to try out at the field, you know. Oh, I've just bought a new piece of property. I've got to go scope it out. Oh, I just got married, and I've got to go on my honeymoon. I don't have time for this. And so the king says, well, go out and invite other people. Go to the streets. Invite the poor, the blind, the lame. Fill my house. They go out and do it, and there's still room. Go out and compel people to come in, he says. Like, go out and arrest them and drag them in. It's amazing, isn't it? But then, there's something very scary at the end of that story. It says that the king was walking through the wedding hall, and all these people were there. But then he crossed a, a man who was there, but he wasn't dressed appropriately for the wedding. And the king says, why aren't you dressed appropriately? I mean, why would you show up to my house looking like that? And the king says, I want you to take him and cast him out. He can't have a part in this because he's not, he's not ready. He doesn't have the qualification. Now, what's the qualification? That's the story. That's the question right of that story. What are the wedding clothes? I want to tell you, I think what they are described there in verse 9. The life of faith. The life of trust. Not depending on myself, but depending on God. The life of waiting. Oh God, you have promised me a feast, but here and now I don't taste a feast very often. Sometimes my life feels like the opposite of a feast. Y'all ever there? Sometimes it feels like a feast, and praise God for it, but there are other times it just doesn't. Because the reality of life in this world is this. God gives us joy, but we don't on this earth experience that joy in an even, always at the full level kind of way. Uh, it's a myth to say that a Christian is someone who's just always got a smile and always clapping, and if you're happy and you know it, say amen, and all that kind of stuff. That's really a myth. Uh, someone who says that never read the book of Psalms, right? Never, never did. You need to go read it. There's a whole lot of weeping going on. Why? Because the weeping, the life of the pilgrim, which is what we are on this earth, the life of the person in this world of dangers, toils, and snares is a life of waiting on God through the hardship. A life of trust, even when the things that we see don't seem to match what God's promised. And it's that act of waiting and that act of trust that's sort of sewing for us the wedding garment in heaven. It's, it, it's teaching us every day how to one day be able to sing this song, God, we trusted in you. We waited on you, God, down below. When things were so bad, we waited on you. But now we're rejoicing. 
Now we're singing. Now we, all of our tears have been wiped away. They weren't wiped away down there. But we nevertheless waited on you. And here we are with you, seated at your table with all those who believed. What's going on in your life every day as a Christian, sometimes, man, it, you don't undersell the things you don't see. Don't undersell the things that no one else sees. Often the greatest work God is doing is so unseen, preparing for what the Bible calls an eternal weight of glory. You can't see it now, but one day you will be able to see it. Um, I, I read this week about the way bamboo grows. Bamboo is one of the fastest growing plants in the world. Catch this. It takes about five years for bamboo to establish itself. But during those first five years, you don't see a thing. Bamboo establishes itself underneath the surface. And then, after the five years, in 90 days, I wrote it down, oh, in five weeks, it grows 90 feet. Five years, you saw nothing. Five weeks, 90 feet tall. That's the Christian life, except we're in the five-year part. When Christ returns, it'll be the 90 feet part. The simple act of God, I trust you. God, thy will be done. Carry out your plan. God, I'm waiting on you. You've promised things, but I'm having a hard time believing them. But, I, but nevertheless, help my unbelief. I believe you. God is building by the Holy Spirit a root system in your heart that one day on that great feast day is going to shoot up 90 feet in song of praise. God, we trusted. And you've saved us. Amen? Would you pray with me this morning?